Bruce Whitfield on 702. Call Bruce on 011-883-0702. Welcome to the Money Show, our How It Works feature this evening. Featuring Professor Nick Benadell, Professor at the Gordon Institute of Business Science. And what we asked Nick Benadell to look at this evening was how you navigate the world of research, of studies, of information when you've got the COVID-19 crisis. Because there must be a thousand institutions, of education institutions around the world, all scurrying around for fame and fortune, looking to have breakthroughs when it comes to research and how to deal with COVID-19. Nick Benadell has been in academia for much of his career and joins us on the line from Joburg this evening. Nick Benadell, how is things in the world of charity on the one hand? Because I know you've been very busy with feeding schemes and um, lockdown academia. Hello, Bruce. Uh, Yep, those are the contradictions we're all living under in this new COVIDian world where on the one hand, it's good to be active and do something that helps others. On the other hand, sometimes to step back and think about uh, how we can assist, uh, assist people moving forward, organizations and individuals. Because this is, I mean, you know, before we get into the, the research and everything else, but this is a very significant global dislocation, whether it comes as a short, sharp shock that we get over quite quickly, or whether it's protracted and prolonged and fundamentally changes the structure of how we live, work and play is yet to be seen. Yes, I mean, it's affected almost every aspect of our lives. I was thinking about kaleidoscopes I had when I was a kid, and if you ever had one, but you'd look down a tube and you'd see a beautiful pattern, you give it one twist and everything changed. And that was a short, sharp shock. Uh, Alvin Toffler warned us about a thing called future shock. He said the rate of change would happen uh, so exponentially that people would struggle with it. Well, none of us predicted we would have such a holistic, penetrated a penetrating, uh, invisible shock to every aspect of human life in the speed with which this has happened. I mean, do you see it as all bad? I mean, to take the health aspects and park that for a second. Is this disruption necessarily all bad? No, it's it definitely not all bad uh, because um, the, the, there are upsides to this. It will produce a lot of innovation economic, technological, scientific innovation will come out of of this challenge. And so it's not all bad. But of course, um, there are things that won't be the same again. And many subsystems will simply uh, dry up and and not come back. So if you think about the nature of the way we work, for sure, we'll work more digitally, and that will have impact on on how buildings are used uh, you know, the value of land and property, et cetera, et cetera. So not all of it's good, that's for sure, because so much damage is being done to the economy, to society. Um, there's a lot of concern all over the world about livelihoods versus lives, as we've debated. Tell me then about the opportunity here for academia to not only learn from what is happening, but also to lead in a time of crisis when it comes to helping make sense of it all. Well, I mean, that's ultimately, you know, universities have two roles. The one is to teach and prepare a next generation. But the primary role of universities is to conduct research. And that's the tradition of of universities, why all of us who end up as scholars do a PhD, is to do original research in some or other field. And, of course, this the, the huge nature, the holistic nature of this generates research in every aspect 
of a university's life from the medical to the scientific to the social to the economic everyone's now asking different sets of questions and the job of the university is to serve society to serve the world to serve humanity by trying to come up and ponder about defining what the questions are we're trying to answer and then either conducting experiments if you're in the hard sciences or probing theories and developing theories in the social sciences as to what the answers are to these questions and that's the role of of research it's to uh, develop ideas and test them rigorously as as possible uh, in a field there was a, a huge breakthrough in the 1960s by a man called Thomas Kuhn who investigated how science develops and there are two ways it develops one is incrementally and slowly the search for answers to a particular disease uh, or a particular engineering problem that happens incrementally in small bits as academics and others chip away at it and then there are the big bang scientific revolutions that come along and at the moment i'm not sure what covid is because it's a it's a virus we know a lot about virology uh, but it's got a new shape and impact that makes it quite original so it'll be interesting to see all the nobel prize potential winners out there as you say in their thousands of labs trying to develop uh, an answer to this particular medical pandemic and then all the scholars are applying their minds because it's shaken all our lives up as to what the social and economic and even political implications are how then i mean when we look at let, let's just look at the scientific for a moment and then we'll focus on the social and economic later because that's really interesting stuff because it changes society and it changes the way we live and work and play but if we look at the science of this thing and the the, the race for a cure this is you know this is the the cold war nuclear arms race all over again but this time possibly for the good of humankind Yes, it's like the search for for Ebola around Ebola and HIV AIDS, where where companies and societies, governments funded research to try and find the best kind of solution that could be found over time, and uh, eventually this was this was found for HIV AIDS. We managed to not avoid the disease, but we managed to control its effects, and so that's what a vaccine does. A vaccine is an antibody that helps the immune system fight off a bacteria. Uh, that one of the first was smallpox in 1796. Um, uh, sorry, measles in 1796, smallpox in 1928. I was doing some research about it. 18% of soldiers died from bacterial infection in the First World War. In the Second World War, less than 1% because antibiotics had been developed by Alexander Fleming and others. And so there was a solution to a defined problem. And that's, of course, what we're all hoping for. But the the time it takes to deliver the solutions, the scientific solutions, has always been protracted because there's a huge amount of risk associated with, with doing medical tests and testing on human beings, for example. Um, in times of crisis like this, is there a risk that we mess it up? Yes, there is, I suppose. Um, you know, if you look at the U.S. and how they're trying to short-circuit the approval process, there is a risk, and then you've got to weigh up as a policy, it's a political decision, to weigh up the amount of risk you take with using a particular solution that has not been fully tested as it would be in normal science. In normal science, we would take a few years to develop in this particular case a vaccine, but because of the scale of the problem, if it keeps growing in certain societies the way it has, uh, people will take a risk uh, to try and find a cure. 
And of course, in science, you go through these days, the pharmacology or the uh, bioscience is, is often computer generated of trying different mixes of formulations, etc., in, in the pharmaceutical industry and trying to come up with a solution and then to develop a uh, the, the, the solution itself and test it normally on some innocent mice and from there hopefully that one can transpose that into human tests. And scientific research always works the same way. You give two equal groups different treatments. The one treatment you try the experimental intervention and then you measure the outcome of both groups. The one did not have an intervention and the other one did and that's how science basically works. And we're seeing this happening at scale in universities across the globe right now. Do you see, uh, and this is an impossible question to answer, but I'm interested in your view on it from what you understand of the world, from what you understand of geopolitics, from what you understand of this rising surge of nationalism, put America first, China first, Japan first, whatever it might be. Um, Do you see hoarding of potential solutions? Do you see the open sourcing, perhaps, for the first time um, once we start finding uh, radical interventions to to treating COVID-19 so that an Aspen Pharmacare is is as capable as a GlaxoSmithKline of producing in-country a solution to, to the pandemic? It's a very interesting question. And I suppose we're talking about two things. One is the research and development, and then the other is the production. I was privileged to work with General Electric uh, in the Middle East, where we called Africa and Middle Eastern uh, ministers of health um, and, and hospital systems together. And one of the things we talked about, this was about seven, eight years ago, was vaccines and how quickly a vaccine can be produced and then shared. And there are systems for doing this. So my hope would be in a global pandemic that we don't get into a geopolitical contestation, although we're seeing some of that as you rightly said, but we take a humanitarian point of view and make whatever comes out as widely available as quickly as possible. And from what I, when I poked my nose into that field, I was very impressed by the systems that are available, that the CDC and other similar centers would do everything they could to disperse the medicine and not for it to be used as a power play between bigger economies or bigger powers and smaller powers. Because when it comes to economics, I mean, this is the single biggest universal economic threat that humanity has faced in our lifetimes. Um, And it's a common threat and it's a common enemy. um, And surely it therefore would make sense. And again, these things make sense theoretically anyway, that everybody gets to fight it equally at the same time to eradicate a pandemic. Because it's no good to anybody if the pandemic sits festering in one territory but is under control in another when you're trying to return to normalized global trade and trying to to, to get, get the world moving again. Exactly. So you have to make an assumption about the nature of leaders and ask whether a particular leader is a statesman or more of a patriot and a nationalist, more inward-looking than outward-looking. And, of course, the real calculation is this is a huge... It's like the environmental issues that we've been failing to face. These are global issues, the decline of the health of the environment. Here we have a particular uh, medical problem. So it pays humanity much better off to ignore national boundaries or ideologies because it pays everyone off to fix the system and allow us to get back to a kind of new normal where we have a productive life. So I think it's a failure of imagination and leadership uh, to be petty and small-minded about it. 
And in that sense, it would be silly not to comment on the U.S. The U.S. is such a young country. I always say it's often like a teenager. It's big muscles and a small memory. Um, and it doesn't really take on the global view very often because it's a young, uh, in a some way, immature society. And I've lived there for many years and I adore the U.S. But it does have the character of, of being petulant. And I think Trump's leadership falls a long mile short of the kind of statesmanship uh, that, that one would expect from, from a hegemon, from a superpower. Um, on the other hand, China has a lot of work to do to recover its reputation. So hopefully they don't miscalculate the rods of these major superpowers and realize it's in everyone's interest to share. And if we share, we'll all do better and the whole system will come back to life far faster and in a far more humane and generous way. Because we've seen the election in recent years, the last five years, particularly of more nationalistic sort of leaders, whether it be Boris Johnson's of the United Kingdom, the Erdogan's of Turkey, the Bolsonaro's of Brazil, um, a vast array of far more put our own country first leaders looking uh, to, to try and you know, solve economic and economic problems. But this is a fundamentally different threat and a fundamentally different challenge. Professor Nick Benadell, who's a professor at the Gordon Institute of Business Science, fascinating chewing the fat with him about the role of universities and academia in trying to deliver not only medical solutions, but also then trying to understand the social consequences of what is happening in this massive dislocation that's happening in the world at the moment, and also the economic consequences. We'll pick up on those points in a moment. So, so much about this crisis is understanding the virology, it's about understanding the epidemiology, it's about understanding how to control the medical aspects of a crisis, and that's one very important part of it. But the rest of it is also incredibly important. It's the social fabric of society is under huge stress at the moment, and then economies around the world, and most particularly here in South Africa, are under an enormous amount of pressure as a result of the very necessary steps to lock down the economy economy for a period of time. Um, and we're looking toward a day when this economy is going to open up somewhat. So let's talk to Professor Nick Benadell this evening about the role of universities and understanding social dynamics in a time of disruption. How do they go about beginning to figure this out, Nick? Well, it, well, Bruce, because this is such a new phenomenon, a lot of what we need to explore, we, we're not even sure what the questions are yet, let alone the answers. So a lot of this will be exploratory, whether it's in psychology or sociology or in economics, trying to understand uh, what's at work. What's very striking to me is that every country has a different set of features that determine how either the policy gets made or executed or not, uh, how people formulate the problem, how they speculate about possible solutions. There's a lovely term in biology called, uh, I'm going to share it with you, it's allopatric speciation. And what that means is when a Bless species you. gets separated for some reason, it starts to develop different features. If you look at South Africa's economic structure, our social structure, our identity, our geographic differences in, within the country, uh, we each have our own response. So our medical and healthcare system has a particular set of resources, structures and skills that have to come together to deal with us. The same is true of the economy. And the same is true of our politics. So these are emerging phenomena as to how a, a different subsystems of the country then start defining the problem and start exploring how to work together or start exploring how to solve the problem. 
let's take the grant system where we've adjusted the grants. Still very, very small, but we made a slight adjustment within our very limited means. So every country has a set of features that are structural or our systems that determine their response. One of the key features is the quality of leadership and how leaders define the problem to be solved. And uh, I think that's been very interesting in this country because we followed an aggressive lockdown policy and it's quite controversial and uh, that still has to be tested. And, I mean, times like this really test uh, the, the tolerance of voters for their politicians. And there's a very real risk here that any governing party in a time of a crisis like this is damned if it doesn't, damned if it doesn't in terms of the way that it deals with this. It's going to have to make trade-offs. It's going to have to make big decisions. And depending on how it plays it, it either stays in power the next time voters line up to, to choose their leaders or they get a big blood nose. And, for example, the ANC with a 55% majority at the moment is... You know, uh, on edge, really, relative to where it was. It had enough problems going into this crisis. This either makes or breaks it, surely. I'm not sure. If I remember back to the 80s when the National Party ruled the roost, um, it, it had big debates and arguments, but the voters still supported it, even though the world rejected its policies. So there's a certain momentum in our yeah. cultural, political life where that's a a big assumption you're making that people might change their electoral preferences, even if it's rational to do so. Sometimes it it doesn't lead to that change in behavior. So yes, the stakes are very, very high, which is why I believe the government has declared it kind of emergency it has and put the troops on the streets and passed the, the act that it did to give it control. And we'll see how that plays out politically. I do think South Africans are fairly conservative and loyal in their political choices. And so the judgment of ordinary voters Mm. is yet to be seen, even though they've taken a tremendous hit. You know, in the informal settlements I've been in, the impact of this has been catastrophic. But who they will attribute the blame for, I think we're more sophisticated than that. I'm not sure it'll just be a gut reaction. Because so much of this then depends on economic outcomes, and that's why there is so much pressure on government to begin to relieve the economic constraints that we're operating under right now. Yes, of course, and that's where where business is engaging with the government uh, wherever possible about the process of risk-adjusted opening. And hopefully, we're all hoping that in the next uh, week or so, we'll get an announcement about Level 3 and understand what that means, because we all want to get back to work. We don't want a society as un- get becoming even more unequal than it's been. And the impoverishment of up to 30 million people is a, is a human catastrophe in South Africa. So we want to get back to work. We want the economy to open up. But we've got to balance off, as we're all saying, between life and livelihoods. And those are terrible dilemmas for leaders to face. Um, and in an absence of information, where we don't have a, a sound theory of what COVID is and how to treat it, it makes it even more difficult. So the pressure then on institutions such as yours and universities across the globe is to really tear this thing apart and truly interrogate every single aspect of COVID-19 and its implications for us all. Yes. So, I mean, if you look at university life to start with, of course, we're not operating the way we did. So the first big shift was to go digital Um, And the second is to then ask yourself, what's the research agenda, as you just said, 
that institutions such as Gibbs, such as the University of Pretoria and all the other good universities need to start addressing. And what resources have you got to address them? And how do you, just like government, how do you shift the resources into studying the new phenomenon? Uh, and how do you learn from other countries and the research they're doing? Scholars tend to collaborate more easily than politicians, I think, across the world. So, you know, we, we learn from everybody and what they're doing. And I'm sure whether it's in the economy or social dynamics, sociology or the psychology of it, uh, we'll be all collaborating on trying to understand what the effects of it are and how they differ from country to country. South Africa is a resilient country. We have resilient people and and all of these things then come together for scholars to try and assist society by doing some groundbreaking uh, research, starting by gathering data, by doing case studies, by getting information as the game moves on and making sure that that information goes into the, the systems of governance, whether they're business, labor, or government itself, to inform the policymakers and help them uh, grope their way into what is very difficult environment to predict. Nick Benadell, we must leave it there. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Nick Benadell. Thank you so much, Gibbs. Bruce. Cheers, Nick.